Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, it's another 10 Things episode with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsey Chervinsky. And this week's subject is the 14th Amendment. Three amendments came out of the Civil War. The 13th, which outlawed slavery. The 14th, which meant that all human beings should be treated with equal respect under the law in the United States. And the 15th, which enabled black men to vote in American elections. We talked about a number of things surrounding the 14th Amendment, including what Jefferson and Madison would have thought about it and who wrote it. Essentially, the 14th Amendment nationalizes the Bill of Rights. That at least was its original intent. It has been misinterpreted pretty systematically through the course of American history. But we use this Jefferson Hour to determine why that amendment was written and what it attempted to accomplish. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to talk about American history with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I want to talk to you about the Civil War. Now, I I know you were not alive during that time, but you more or less warned us that we were headed towards one, didn't you, sir? I could see that it was almost inevitable when the Missouri Compromise was established in 1819 and 1820. This meant that one state would come in as a free state at the same time that another would come in as a slave state. This was to keep the balance in the United States Senate and to make sure that the northern states did not attempt to intrude upon the southern institution of slavery. As much as I disagree with slavery, I felt that drawing a line across the American West, on one side of which there would be free people and on the other side enslaved people, would create a a fundamental sectional division which would lead to secession and maybe to civil war. Well, one thing, sir, that it did lead to was a couple of amendments to the Constitution. Uh, I'm simplifying, but the 13th Amendment essentially made slavery illegal. And the 14th Amendment, it did a number of things, but one of the things was is that it reinforced that Uh, American citizens had rights. Uh, And again, sir, it wasn't during your time, but I'd like your reaction. Well, I I congratulate the 13th Amendment. I think that's the only way to solve the problem of slavery. Slavery was embedded in the Constitution that was written in 1787 and ratified in 1788. Uh, The Three-Fifths Clause, the Fugitive Slave Clause, the postponement by 20 years of any a restriction on the slave trade, and so on. And so to remove those offensive provisions of the Constitution would not require routine legislation. That wouldn't be sufficient. It would require an amendment to clarify all of this. So the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which came after your Civil War, were designed to do just that. The problem is that ending slavery is easier than knowing what comes afterwards. I could contemplate the end of slavery. I knew it would be uh, an agony uh, for everybody involved, for our economy, for Southern white planters, for for African-American slaves, that this was going to be a very rough uh, transition from 
a slave economy to one that no longer operated in that way. But what I couldn't understand in my own lifetime is how we would incorporate free blacks into our republic. I had significant doubts about whether a biracial republic would really work in anything like a harmonious way. So this was one of the impediments to doing the easier part, emancipation, because we didn't know what would follow, what sort of a social fabric we would be able to put together in the wake of the end of slavery. Well, sir, I I believe that all of us as human beings suffer from racism to one degree or another. Uh, It's a constant fight. But this amendment uses your language, sir, and it it guarantees that no one can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. Yes, well, those are uh, phrases common to John Locke's Second Treatise on Government and my own adjustment of it in the Declaration of Independence from Life, Liberty, and Property to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Certainly true. I mean, when I wrote the Declaration of Independence, I understood that that black people, that Africans and African-Americans were human beings, and as human beings, they had natural rights, and those natural rights were identical in theory under universal application of natural law to those of their white counterparts. Uh, We understood the principle. Once you understand the principle, now you have to work towards its realization in the polity, in the actual political arena. And that turns out to be much more difficult than just understanding the theory of the thing. Well, as all items in our government and our happy republic, sir, to be continued, we must talk again. Thank you so much. This week's Thomas Jefferson Hour, another 10 Things episode. We are so pleased to welcome back Lindsay Chervinsky, and we are joined, of course, by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and this week's subject is 10 Things About the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was passed by Congress in June of 1866. It was ratified in July of 1868. So I think those dates are important because, uh, as we may remember in our history books, the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery officially, was ratified in 1865. So this is a full three years later that this is ratified. And the purpose of it is, there's really multiple purposes. The purpose is to, on one hand, ensure that certain individuals who participated in the Confederacy could not participate going forward, to ensure that voting and representation was more reflective of the people who actually lived in the state, so basically got rid of the three-fifths clause. But most importantly was Section 1, which says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens 
of the United States and the states within the, they reside, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And so this is really the clause that was not so much designed as an insult to the Confederacy, but rather to ensure that formerly enslaved individuals had full rights of citizenship as anyone else. So let me back up a little bit. Uh, we have an amendment process. Uh, the amendment bar is very high. Uh, in 235 years, there have only been 27 amendments to the Constitution of the United States, although there have been thousands of proposed amendments. To amend the Constitution, you need to get two-thirds of both houses of Congress to approve the amendment. Then it goes to the states, where three-quarters of the states must ratify. That's a very high bar for amendment. The genius of an amendment system is to make it not too difficult and not too easy. Um, you don't want frivolous amendments, and you don't want amendments to just pop up from time to time. You want to look for something like true national consensus. But the wisdom today is that the amendment process is too difficult. The last successful amendment was 1992, a full generation ago, and it was about congressional salaries, not of grave importance, certainly not in retrospect. The first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights came straight off the end of the constitutional period in the first Congress of the United States. They're almost an afterword, um, an appendix uh, to the Constitution of the United States. So if you discount those extremely important first 10, that just leaves 17 amendments in 235 years. And what's so interesting, David, is that after the Bill of Rights and then the 11th and 12th, which are not of grave importance, importance, but not of grave importance, then the next amendments came after the Civil War. So what that tells us is that Lincoln was right. Lincoln essentially said, we can't go on under the existing order of things, that we have to spread the mantle of human rights and liberty wider, and we have to rethink what a citizen is and how the United States shall operate if we're going to go on after this fundamental national crisis, the Civil War. Lincoln didn't live to see all of it, but that led to the next amendment. So the first 12 are almost at the beginning of American constitutional history. Then you jump 50 years and you get the 13th, 14th, and 15th. The 13th, which ends slavery. The 14th, which is the subject of today's 10 Things Conversation. And the 15th, which um, establishes voting rights for African-American males. And so before we go on, Lindsay, both in the 14th and the 15th Amendment, you have the Reconstruction Congress straining to absorb these colossal changes that have occurred. They extend the franchise to black men, but not to women. There's something deeply troubling about this, right? Absolutely. I mean, and it was a calculated decision. There was a conversation that took place and it was basically understood that if they tried to push for suffrage for any adult, that it would fail. And so they made the decision that they would not include race or end gender in that prohibition. And so instead it took another, what, nearly 60 years to get uh, both included in the constitution. 
So Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who had worked extremely hard on race issues and on uh, emancipation issues and on these amendments, was so disillusioned when it came down this way that it really poisoned her soul for a time. Uh, and she said some things that I'm sure she regretted having said about all of this. But, you know, it goes back to Mary Wollstonecraft and Abigail Adams, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to do this, let's do it. Here was a chance. So I was trying to make the case that, that these amendments came out of the cataclysm, that there's been an earthquake in American life. And so to go on, you have to make these really significant fundamental changes. You would think that we would just get it over with and extend the franchise of liberty as widely as possible, possibly even including Native Americans who didn't become citizens until 1924. But they must have assumed that politics is the art of the possible and that they must have thought that the country wasn't ready for female emancipation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, they were probably right, because even in 19, in the 1910s, when that finally came time for that discussion to be at the front of the public debate, a lot of people still were very uncomfortable with it. And a lot of people were very uncomfortable when there were debates over the Equal Rights Amendment that has passed and been ratified by the requisite states, but is still sort of up for debate. And so, you know, the real conviction behind the 14th Amendment was at this point, of course, Lincoln was no longer alive, but he had been very concerned that if the promises of the Emancipation Proclamation were not put into more forceful effect, if they were not made permanent, then that would only be a wartime measure. And even if the Union won the war, then there would be backsliding, which was why he was very encouraging of the 13th Amendment and signed it uh, with with great gusto. And so that spirit, that concept, while he was no longer alive, it certainly motivated the 14th and 15th to ensure that the progress that was bought with the lives and blood of so many would not be temporary. More than 700,000 people killed during the Civil War, and we get these three new amendments between 1865 and 1868. And if you were looking at this from Jupiter, uh, with no understanding of race, you might say, well, this settles the problem, doesn't it? This, uh, this uh, ends slavery. It enfranchises African-American men. Um, it insists that they be accorded the same rights, equal rights, uh, to their white counterparts in every state in the Union. End of story. So why is the 14th Amendment so deeply disappointing in its effect for the first many decades after it was ratified? Well, initially, it wasn't disappointing. This is often a part of the Reconstruction story that is left out because usually Reconstruction is the point at which the first part of the U.S. survey stops and the second part starts. And so I mean, history surveys in colleges and schools. Right. Yes, thank you. So many professors sort of run out of time when you get to the end. And so the part of Reconstruction that's not told all that often is that initially it was widely successful. It was um, hugely symbolic and important. And there were many, many, many states that had majority uh, black governments, had a lot of different people that represented their communities, had properly democratically elected institutions and uh, black edu black schools, black businesses, 
um, black churches, there was this huge outpouring of black civic life and it was really unbelievably successful initially. So we were in fact reconstructing the social fabric and the legal fabric of the United States initially. Yes. And one of the key, there were sort of a couple of key moments that undermined that success. Initially, the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the 18s, the end of the 1860s, started to threaten the success with violence, intimidation, death, etc. And that was actually repulsed when Ulysses S. Grant employed federal troops to go down to places like South Carolina and crush that threat. So initially, these amendments and these freedoms required federal intervention. Required the occupation of the defeated South. Yes. So it required federal intervention, federal occupation, but not even necessarily on the scale of a civil war. The number of federal troops that were in South Carolina were relatively few, but it did require that presence. So that was the first piece. And then once that piece started to be pulled back, you started to see the encroachment again of violence and intimidation. And that only continued up through the 1870s and 1880s into what we think of as the real period of Jim Crow. The second piece is that as we have learned in 2022, constitutional amendments and the Constitution are subject to judicial interpretation. And over time, the 14th Amendment was interpreted to reduce the protections for individual liberties and especially liberties in regarding to race and became much more focused on property and businesses. And that was a judicial intervention that reduced the efficacy of this amendment. And that's why one of the reasons it has been disappointing for so long. Well, there are some punitive elements to the 14th Amendment. There are several articles in it. And the Union is not expecting to pay for the war debts of the Confederacy. The, 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 the government of the United States is not going to assume those debts, period. Secondly, anyone who participated and can be proved to have been an insurrectionist is no longer eligible for national office unless two-thirds of both houses of Congress make an exception for that person. And third, if the Southern Confederate states don't honor the Equal Protection Clause and they disenfranchise African Americans, they will lose part of their representation in Congress in exact proportion to the percentage of people whose basic rights they now do not honor under the 14th Amendment. So those three punitive things are, are important parts of the amendment. That would be the one that I would put at the top of the list, but we do need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get into your list of 10 things. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, 10 things about the 14th Amendment with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special guest and friend, Lindsay Chervinsky. So I'm going to get into the list, and number one is how important is the 14th Amendment? Well, I mean, you know, so I think one of the one of the challenges is that we tend to prioritize amendments one through ten over the others because they're the Bill of Rights, they're they've been around the longest. But that's not actually how the amendment process works. There isn't a caste system for amendments. All the amendments are added on to the Constitution with equal weight. And I think that section one of Article 14 is probably the most <coughs> important section of any amendment in the Constitution, which is a pretty big statement, but I think that it is the heart of what the revolution was about. It was a heart, the heart of what everything that Thomas Jefferson argued for. It borrows his language. It is designed to try and create a more perfect freedom and liberty for every individual. And if that's not the most important thing, then I don't know what is. So under the 10th Amendment, the Federalist uh, dual sovereignty is preserved. Those powers not delegated to the national government belong instead to the states and to the people. And there was a debate amongst the founders about whether the Bill of Rights should percolate into the states or, or the states should have their own uh, capacity to determine within their own boundaries the rights and privileges of their citizenship. This is a very lively debate and one that wasn't finally settled during the founding period. Madison wanted essentially something like the 14th Amendment, some sort of clause in the original Constitution that would nationalize the privileges and immunities and the equal protections of the Constitution itself. He did not win that debate at the Constitutional Convention. So when the 14th Amendment is ratified in 1868, it changes everything, theoretically because it now nationalizes the Bill of Rights, especially one through eight, and says you can't in Mississippi say, well, those amendments to the Bill of Rights only apply to truly national things or interstate things, but they, they have no validity here in Mississippi. They have no validity. The 14th Amendment attempts to say that's no longer true, that the rights that people have in New Jersey are the same rights that people have in Mississippi. That was the intent that intent was not realized for decades. And in fact, the courts, as Lindsay said in the first segment, went out of their way in the decades following 1868 deliberately and fundamentally to misread the 14th Amendment to protect industry and property to be okay with the disenfranchisement of African Americans. And so there was a, per there was a deliberate perversion of the clear meaning of the 14th Amendment. All the people in the court would have had to do was look at the congressional debates. They could have looked at what John A. Bingham of Ohio said on the floor of Congress in proposing the language of the 14th Amendment to realize that this was intended to protect African-American citizens in the United States. The courts, in a real dereliction of duty, failed to do so. And this reminds us, as Lindsay said earlier, of how important the makeup of the Supreme Court is. You know, the, the law, the, the amendment is there. It's as clear as ice. But the courts chose to distort it and degrade it for reasons best known to themselves. They denied what was in plain sight before them, the intent of this thing, which was easily learned. 
You've uh, kind of touched on the next two questions, but I'm going to give them to you anyway, which is uh, how has the 14th Amendment been misused and misinterpreted? And also, what would Madison and Jefferson have thought of it? Let me just quickly say what Jefferson would have thought. Um, of course, he's a universal human rights guy within limits, uh, but he believed in state sovereignty. And so he would be more likely to believe that Virginia should handle its own uh, rights tradition in its own way with less national governmental intrusion than, say, Madison. So here's an area where Jefferson and his closest friend and collaborator had different views of, of, of the true meaning of federalism. But, Lindsay, expand on, if you agree, on what I said about distortion of the 14th Amendment. Yeah, absolutely. So there was um, there was a, a sense in the founding period that while state legislatures could potentially be dangerous, this was Madison's concern, things like local communities, local authorities, um, churches, other sort of forms of local control would help push back on these things and help protect some of these authorities, which is one of the reasons that Jefferson was so pro-states' rights. By the 1860s, it was clear that that was not the case because Southern communities were not able to defend and protect the liberties of a large portion, in some cases, a majority of their population. So just a little bit of context for what some of the thinking was behind the 14th Amendment, and this is the piece that I think often gets forgotten, is there were very concrete concerns and very concrete fears that shaped the language of Section 1, which was... If you pass the 13th Amendment and slavery was no longer possible, with no amount of free speech and no amount of Second Amendment rights, could people proclaim to be free or to have full liberty if you didn't have autonomy over your individual self and you didn't have autonomy over your family? So at, in the 1860s, enslaved people, formerly enslaved people, would have told you that, yes, forced labor was terrible. But what was really so horrific about slavery was the fact that if you were married, your spouse could be sold from you with no notice and no approval on your part. You had no autonomy over your home because if you were a man, your wife could be abused or raped by the owner and there was nothing you could do. Your children could be sold um, in fact, regularly, this was a process. So you had no bodily or physical or family autonomy. And if you don't have those things, if you can't choose who to marry and to retain some sense of privacy over your marriage or to protect your children, you are not free, period. Those were the fears and the concerns that were shaping the language of the 14th Amendment, that people had to be free from being sold. They had to be free from being used. They had to be free from having their children seized. Obviously, that was misused starting in the 1880s into what we think of as the Gilded and Progressive Era. One of the key cases that maybe this, this name is going to sound familiar to some people is called the Lochner case. And the Lochner case was a case in New York City where the state had passed a bill saying that bakers could not work more, could not be forced to work more than 60 hours per week because it was a particularly unhealthful uh, job, employment, form of employment. And the Supreme Court said no. They said that that deprives an individual bakery owner from the right to contract, which, of course, the right the concept of the right to contract is nowhere in the Constitution. So, but it became all about the individual rights of business owners as opposed to 
the healthful rights of laborers. And that was really, I think, where the main perversion came from. And we haven't really gotten back to that. There's a book that I want to recommend, which is called How Rights Went Wrong by Jamal Green. And he talks about sort of our multi-centuries long debate as American people over what rights are more important than others, which ones we should prioritize, um, how we should think about them, how we've thought about them incorrectly. It's really very thought-provoking. All right. So in the Slaughterhouse cases and Lochner and other cases, the court upheld property rights, business rights, uh, the rights of white um, owners of enterprises, uh, but chose not to uphold the rights of now uh, liberated, at least legally liberated African Americans. And when, Lindsay, the after the initial honeymoon period, let's call it, of Reconstruction, when the troops were withdrawn and when the, the, the political bargains were made involving Rutherford B. Hayes and so on, when all that happened, what did the... What did the U.S. Supreme Court, what did the courts think of Jim Crow, of black codes, of lynching, of the KKK, of the systematic um, reintroduction of a, of a kind of slavery under other names? Did, did they attend to this or were they indifferent to this? They were not indifferent. They were at times vocally supportive. So the case Plessy versus Ferguson is probably a name that many listeners have heard in which the court basically said it was fine for local communities to uphold their customs through code and the law. And there, there wasn't anything the federal court was going to do about that. And Plessy was a man who had purchased a ticket on a train to be in a first-class car. This is when there were segregated rail cars. And he it was an intentional sort of test case to try and force the issue. So he was arrested and... The case went up to the Supreme Court, and it basically held that Jim Crow laws were legal. Now, of course, there were dissents to these cases. There were dissents to Lochner. There were dissents to Plessy. Uh, Justice Harlan was one of the most notorious uh, dissenters in all of these cases and perhaps one of the most interesting figures because he had come from Kentucky. He had been previously uh, an owner of enslaved individuals himself. He had fought in the Civil War and then sort of had a turn during President Grant's presidency. Um, but the Supreme Court basically allowed it to happen. And if not outwardly tacitly approved it, and it wasn't until Brown versus Board of Education that the Supreme Court said these codes are not acceptable, separate but equal is not possible. It does not exist. And they have to be changed. What was the process of, of this amendment being written and, and the ratification process? Well, I know a little bit about this. A lot of these provisions, it's the 14th is sort of a grab bag amendment. It turns out some of these uh, attempted to be passed as legislation in the Reconstruction Congress. Uh, there was an intense debate and, and controversy over some provisions of it. They were finally bundled together. And as I say, John A. Bingham of Ohio was the principal sponsor of this. And when it found its way out of the Congress, then finally... Uh, it was ratified by 29, 28 of the 37 states on July 9th, 1868. And so I guess my question about this for Lindsay is, I mean, this feels like one of the handful of, of, of 
of lost chances in American history that if we had really decided to do it, however agonizing this was going to be, and maintained the occupation and maintained uh, the enforcement of, of Reconstruction codes and you know, forced integration, forced something like equal attention to the rights of humans irrespective of their color, would we have avoided the century and more of race agony that we have been in? That's one view. Or is human nature and human prejudice so deeply baked in that it just wasn't going to happen, that, that, that it was too much to ask of the people of the time, it may be too much to ask of the people of our time in some instances, to make this change, this basic change of the soul's response to the other with a capital O when the other is of another race. In other words, how is, I can see somebody saying, nice try, but it wasn't in the cards. But I can also say another person saying, if we had really persevered, we might have been able to solve the problem then. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I think humans don't aren't born with racial prejudice. It's not part of your genetic code. It's not part of your blood. It's taught. And that's true for misogyny. It's true for racial thinking. It's true for any form of bias. You have to be taught to feel that way. You have to be taught what is normal and other, what is standard and less. And so there's nothing about humans that says that we can't be a more equitable society. In the 1860s, towards the end of the 1860s, into the 1870s, when President Grant was in office, there was a sense, there was still a, a significant sense among Northerners that they had fought the Civil War, they supported it, they felt that it was the right thing to do, but they hadn't necessarily fought the Civil War to create equal rights. Now, many believed that they were fighting the Civil War to end slavery. And the South, I should say, is very explicit that the Civil War is about slavery. If anyone thinks that I'm lying about this, I highly recommend looking at the deeds of secession that the states passed. They were quite explicit about why they were leaving the Union. So the North knew that. The North was supportive of that. They felt that slavery was incompatible with capitalism and was bad for the nation. And of course, they were fighting to preserve the nation. But they weren't fighting for equality, and racism was still deeply embedded in American society. And so, both North and South. Yes, very much both North and South, and in different sort of nuanced ways, but but nonetheless in both North and South. So, when the time came to continue to invest in Reconstruction, to continue invest in troops being sent South, there were a lot of Northerners that said, "We already won." We eradicated slavery. What are we doing? Why are we continuing to expend this effort and this money to, to fight this? This is not what we wanted to spend our money and time and effort on. We don't want to send our soldiers down there. We don't want anything to do with it. We want to focus on these other things. Americans have kind of always had a short attention span. This is something we continue to grapple with today, that once we feel like we've accomplished the initial thing, we kind of want to be done with it. We don't want to nation build. That's not something that we as a nation are particularly good at. And so it was a missed opportunity. I do think that if there had been continued investment, if there had been investment in civic life and education and uh, reinforcement through, you know, if necessary, military force to prevent the continued rise of the KKK, I think it would have been possible. I think what made it so difficult long term is that 
the rise of the narrative of like the grand old South had it been quashed right after the Civil War and had all of these efforts been made while the Civil War was still fresh in people's minds, I think it would have been more successful than trying to redo that process 100 years later. Well, what happened, in my opinion, is, um, is heartless. So you have the Emancipation Proclamation coupled with the 13th Amendment. So now you have legally ended slavery. Now what? You have hundreds of thousands of now free African-Americans in the country, some in the North, most in the South. Where are they to go? What are they to do? How are they to live side by side with unreconstructed Southern racists who never wanted this liberation to happen and deeply resent the way in which it was imposed upon them through war? I mean, the only chance you have in this is either to repatriate, to separate the races at that moment, which was um, uh, talked about in many quarters, including at times by Abraham Lincoln, or you have to force some sort of social amalgam to work it out. But you, but if you just dump hundreds of thousands of African Americans into a hostile social environment that has no commitment to equality, the results are going to be what we got, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the type of, you know, industry and opportunity that was available. So the South was a primarily agricultural society. There were very few factories. There were very few industrial jobs, which are the type of jobs that are typically held by people without, you know, specialized skills or higher education. So, and the majority of enslaved individuals were not educated and didn't have those specialized skills. So the only thing available to them was agricultural work. And if you have agricultural work, then it's going to be dominated by the people who own the land and have the ability to control prices and wages. And that became what was known as the sharecropper system, where these workers were basically sort of exploited because they didn't have any other options. But did the Northerners who were righteous about slavery, maybe not social equalitarian in any meaningful sense, did they agonize over this? Like, what happens now? Okay, we've we've emancipated. We now have a responsibility, don't we, to take the next steps to make this a more perfect union? Certainly some felt that way. That was the motivating principle behind the 14th Amendment. A lot of others were just primarily concerned that the workers who didn't have any other options didn't come north and steal their jobs. We need to take a short break. Clay, you mentioned Lincoln in one of your recent comments, and that's something I'd like to come back to when we return. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week. It's 10 things about the 14th Amendment. Clay, you mentioned Lincoln in one of your comments in the last segment, and and that's something I wanted to know is how much Lincoln had to do with the 14th Amendment. I think that everyone understood, Jefferson too, that slavery was incompatible with the idea of an American democracy, with American constitution, with America's Bill of Rights. Um, some people willfully denied this, but but more or less every thoughtful person understood that we had a really fundamental problem here that had to get solved before we could go on. And and Lincoln's greatness, I think, was forcing us to face it. And if you look at the letters that he wrote before the war, they're extraordinary letters in which he's wrestling with this problem. And he basically says, we can't go on this way. We just can't go on this way. We have to wrestle this problem to the ground. Uh, We have to live up in some more meaningful sense to Jefferson's statement that all human beings are created equal. Well, it turns out that's the easier part of this problem. However horrific it was, and almost 800,000 killed, that's the easier part. The harder part is, now what? And I don't think that Lincoln had really seen through this issue I think that he was as perplexed as everybody else about what was to follow, and I don't know, maybe Lindsay can clarify this, but I don't know that he had a specific plan for Reconstruction. I believe he would have he would have been on the side of Reconstruction, but his compassion for the defeated would also have uh, made it harder for him to be righteous about this, I think. What do you say, Lindsay? One of the great what ifs of American history is what would have happened had Lincoln survived. And so in a lot of ways, the 14th Amendment is actually the sort of perfect legacy of Lincoln without Lincoln having anything to do with it. So Lincoln was absolutely committed to ending slavery. He certainly was starting to think about Reconstruction. I think he would have been supportive of it. He understood that you couldn't just end slavery and then go back to exactly the way that it was. He was very rational in that way, but he was also thinking through it in real time, and he was dealing with these crises as they arose. So it was very much an ongoing deliberation. And then, of course, he died unexpectedly, and the worst possible option came from that, which was that Andrew Johnson as president. And so Congress, in a lot of ways, while while a lot of the people in Congress already had believed in the things of the 14th and 15th Amendment, In some ways, it was a response to Johnson undermining what they felt like was everything that Lincoln had done and undermining this achievement and undermining Reconstruction. And so there is an argument. It's impossible, of course, to prove because we can't do this counterfactual that these amendments might not have happened had Lincoln survived. And and because of Johnson's sort of terribleness that they provoked Congress into doing this, There's a great book. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about John Bingham, who authored the amendment. There's a great um, biography on him called American Founding Son uh, by Gerard Maglioka. I hope I said that correctly. Um, And he has this line, which I think is so brilliant, which is that Lincoln was our greatest constitutional poet, but Bingham was the man who turned that poetry into prose. And that's true. The 14th Amendment encapsulates the ideas that Lincoln talked about and inspired, even if he wasn't there to actually make it happen. So, Lindsay, tell us more about Bingham of Ohio. 
the fact that we don't know more about Bingham, I mean, like as the um, as the American people, the fact that he's not a more central player in our American story is actually pretty shocking. He was from Ohio. He was a lawyer. He uh, entered the House of Representatives in 1855. So, of course, before the Civil War, he became one of the strongest anti-slavery voices. But he was among the more moderate Republicans. But he was also very pro-abolitionist. Later on in his career, he served as one of the prosecutors in the military trial against the accomplices of John Wilkes Booth, and in fact gave the closing argument um, in their trial. He also served on the impeachment team that prosecuted Andrew Johnson, and he was one of the people who really articulated what the South had to do. He crafted the demands made by the North on the South before they could return to the Union. And then later he went on to serve as an ambassador and he did all these incredible things. Japan, and wasn't it? Yeah, he's just an incredible figure that we just don't know much about. And I think that's a real oversight. But he also paid um, his dues. He walked the walk. He befriended an African-American as a young lawyer. Uh, he helped him get a, um, a degree. You know, this was not somebody who was just talking abstractions. He believed, I don't know a lot about him, but he appears to have actually believed that it was possible for the two races to live together in the same republic, and that if we did the right kind of work for this, we could greatly improve the lot of the lives of former slaves and freedmen. And so that's, I think, an unusual position, a passionate position, and one that deserves the deepest respect. Yeah, he's one of those people who lives their values, which is fairly unusual in humans to to both live the things that you're articulating. Rhetoric is one thing, but actions are much more powerful. There is one thing on your list, Clay, that I, I really wasn't even aware of, and that's that you, you say this, there are currently people who would like to see this amendment repealed. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's an ugly side of American life, and it's been around for a long, long time, and it kind of rises and falls in its intensity. But in Article 1 of the 14th Amendment, it says, if you're born here, you are an American citizen, period. There are many people on the far right that would like to clarify or repeal that provision. And they, the anecdote that they'll throw forward is of the Hispanic woman who crosses the Rio Grande, nine months pregnant, gives birth the next day in El Paso. Her child is now an American citizen because of the birthright uh, guaranteed in the 14th Amendment. And there are, uh, there's a lot of talk in conservative and far-right circles about that being a ruinous provision which should be um, repealed. That's one version. There are also people on the far right that don't like the 14th Amendment, period. They want to go back to a state's rights model and say, if Mississippi wants to discriminate against a certain type of citizen, that's an issue for the voters of Mississippi to work out. And so you have these two um, continual attacks on the 14th Amendment by the people who don't like its provisions, not just in 1868, but in 1968, in 2022 also. Disgusting. It is. I, I, I just, I don't... It makes you sick to think about, really. It does. And, you know, I just don't understand the cruelty embodied in that, in that position. It's, it's hard for me to fathom. So we have the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery. 
Then we have the 14th Amendment, which in many ways enforces the 13th Amendment. And nationalizes the Bill of Rights, at least in intent. So this 14th Amendment, from both of you, how does it rank in importance amongst the 27th Amendments? It's the most important amendment after the first eight, in my opinion. I'd put it above that. I would say that it's higher because I think, as I said earlier, the the concept that no state can infringe upon liberty and freedom encompasses a whole lot of stuff. It encompasses the right to privacy. It encompasses free speech. It encompasses all the things that makes one a truly free citizen. And um, I don't, I just don't know what could be more important than that. So things like gay marriage, um, Roe v. Wade, uh, when it was still the constitutional law of the United States, uh, a lot of these landmark cases extending rights across the country uh, and trying to create a uniform system of respect for human rights have been based in the 14th Amendment. You take the 14th Amendment away, and this is a much different national equation, and now we're seeing judicial attacks on those very provisions of the 14th. Lindsay, you object, I think. Well, I don't object. I think that these things should be based on the 14th Amendment. Um, I think the problem is that a lot of time they've been based on other amendments in terms of trying to find, like, privacy. And, um, you know, the word privacy, the right to privacy, is not articulated as such in the amendment. There are there are elements of privacy that are protected and are, are explicit. The Fifth Amendment talks about, of course, you know, private property and... Uh, amendment, the fourth amendment talks about sort of restrictions on search and seizures, which has been interpreted as a privacy amendment. And so most of the arguments actually in Roe v. Wade were actually based on the fourth amendment. And I think that your argument is stronger. And a lot of people have been saying this, that you cannot have equal protection under the law. You cannot have that equal protection right if there are laws that only apply to some people or are unduly burdensome on some people. So for example, a prohibition against gay marriage is unduly burdensome on people who want to choose who they want to marry. You cannot have equal protection for marriage under the 14th Amendment. And so I think so many of these rights should be based on the 14th, but they haven't been, and that's problematic because it's actually, I think, a much stronger legal argument than has been made. And the only way, you, you know, you really need to think about this is, um, this is not a new idea. I listened to, oh, there's, I'm going to forget his name. There was, there's a, a Republican strategist who has talked about how in the 1960s, if you talked to before Loving versus Virginia, like 4% of Americans supported interracial marriage. And now if you ask someone that, like, of course, people are allowed to marry people of different races. It has completely evolved our way of thinking. Gay marriage is no different. It's just choosing who you want to love. It's choosing who you want to spend your life with. And as I said earlier, that is the essence of freedom and where those arguments should be based. Right. So, for example, let's say that I'm in, um, I, I marry a, a, another man in the state of Minnesota. If I move to Arkansas and they do not recognize gay marriage, what happens to me legally? What happens in a whole range of questions about inheritance, about health care, about joint property, and so on? Can I be prosecuted 
in another state uh, which criminalizes gay marriage and so on. The idea is that there are certain rights which are so central to what it is to be human that once we finally get to them, say women's suffrage, they have to be uniformly available in everything called the United States of America. And if it can vary wildly from state to state, then this puts, as Lindsay says, not only an undue burden on people, but it, it, it allows the country to be a two-tiered country where enlightenment prevails in some places and darkness in other. And so the 14th Amendment is, is the right hill to die on for questions of this sort. The big mistake I think that, that was made in the 14th Amendment is that it, 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 it didn't go far enough. For one thing, it, it was interpreted to, to mean only state issues, public issues, things that involve the, the polity and not private things. And so that allowed, say, Plessy versus Ferguson to say, well, if it's a, if it's a hotel, they're within their rights to deny rooms to someone they don't want to uh, give rooms to. So it, it didn't go far enough in that respect. And the founding fathers would be aghast that we're even having this conversation, but they didn't enshrine privacy either in the body of the converse, uh, of the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. If they'd known how deep an assault would be made on privacy in the 21st, 20th and 21st century, I can assure you they would have articulated privacy as the fundamental human right. But since it's not there, in a case like Dodd's, Alito and other Supreme Court justices could say, we don't see a right to privacy, so I guess that means that abortion is not enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, this is a, um, it's not a mistake because the Founding Fathers understood what human rights meant better than we do. But it's a mistake that they didn't realize how, I guess this is what Madison was talking about. If you don't actually articulate it, it may come back to bite you. And here we have the, the, the sort of, the term is the lacuna, the, the, the vacuum on the privacy question in our Constitution, which has led to a lot of recent mischief. The 14th Amendment, so-called Reconstruction Amendment, prohibited states from depriving any person of, quote, life, liberty, or property without the due process of law. I'm just wondering from the both of you how you look at this for the 21st century. You both talked about it a bit, but um, that's pretty broad and, and open to interpretation. Uh, you can't deprive any person, a state can't, of life, liberty, or property. I know privacy is a big issue, but um, it broadly, doesn't that cover it? I would think so. I agree with your interpretation. I think that you cannot be, um, you cannot have liberty if you do not have privacy. It's essential. It's essential to be able to choose how you want to form your family. It is essential to have bodily autonomy. These are the essences of what it means to be a functioning adult in charge of your sovereign over your own self. And I think that the 14th Amendment should really be the center of 21st century life. And I'm hoping that we can continue to push for that because a world without that is a very sad place to be. And it's not it's not very Jeffersonian of me to say this, but, you know, isn't this a strong case for why we need a strong federal government? Yes, until recently, the, the national government has brought on most of the enlightenment of the 20th century against the kicking and screaming states. Uh, 
I think a mistake was made in in our teaching about this. I'm really interested in Lindsay's perspective on this. I know we're almost out of time, but I think we teach this wrongly in our schools. As you said, it usually falls between the gap of section one and section two of American history, but also it's taught as a as a as a wrap up Civil War race amendment when that's not really what it is fundamentally. It's really an, a new way of looking at human rights in a much broader and more um, penetrating way for the whole country than previously. And so it's it's sort of ghettoized in race when it needs to be a, a more universal application of human right. And I think that's on teaching. I think that I think we're not teaching it correctly. I agree. And I think probably that's because we tend to focus on the debates over it, on how it's been interpreted in terms of business versus, you know, protection of labor, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, it's a humanity amendment. And if we could focus on that and teach that, I think that would go a long way. Just to say, as we wrap up here, David and Lindsay, I know you you both share my uh, sense of loss that the great David McCullough has died, one of America's greatest historians, public historians. We all have benefited from his books, The Path Between the Seas, The Johnstown Flood. Uh, Of course, there is his book on Adams and Jefferson, which wound up being a book on Adams, a deeply distinguished man, and for all of us, the voice of Ken Burns' Civil War. I met with him a couple of times. I had dinner with him once. He was a gentle, marvelous, um, deeply soulful human being and really established a certain idea of what a public historian should be and and we can't say we didn't get enough from him because he wrote a lot of great books but we all note his loss with sadness we'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.